Hi, and welcome to the Active Travel podcast, brought to you by the Active Travel Academy, which is part of the University of Westminster in London. I'm Laura Laker, an Active Travel journalist. Now, we know cycling has benefits for physical and mental health um, as a low-cost transport for independence, access to services, work and education, but there are people across society who can't access cycling. The most recent National Travel Attitude Survey found two-thirds of adults feel it's too dangerous to cycle, and cycling is still predominantly something done by a small proportion of the population. In other words, it's not very diverse. According to a new report by Sustrans and Arup, Cycling for Everyone, 85% of people over 65 and around three quarters of disabled people, women, people at risk of deprivation and people from ethnic minority groups never cycle. This report is what we're talking about today, what it tells us about why certain people don't cycle and what can be done to change that. So with me today are one of the report's authors, Susan Claris, who is the Global Active Travel Leader at Arup. Hi, Susan. Hello. And Daisy Narayanan, who is Sustrans Director of Urbanism. Hi, Laura. Hi, Susan. Hi. So, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, It's great to have you both on. Um, Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about how the report came about and who it's aimed at? It's, it's actually got quite an interesting story because I had to remind myself of this one. It was it was actually from, from the Arab side. It was a, a colleague who joined us as a graduate back in 2015 and he'd done his dissertation on cycling and older people. And shortly after joining us, he sort of said, you know, there's not much guidance out there. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be good if we could actually do something to, to look into this subject? And it took a bit of a while to get it get it all going. But from that, we had discussions with Sustrans um, and the idea came about drawing on the Sustrans Bike Life data to actually produce this guide that would actually show how cycling can be made more inclusive and really can be made for, for everyone. So that, that was the background of it from, from the Arab side. I don't know whether Daisy wants to talk about it from the Sustrans side. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just adding to what you said, Susan, from a Sustrans perspective, you know, both Sustrans strategic priorities have for everyone at its very heart. So the whole concept of inclusive design has been something that we in Sustrans are really wanting to focus on. Uh, so for me, this was so timely with this conversation with Arup, you know, with what, what Bike Life was saying to us as well over the past year, you know, talking about diversity and inclusion and all set within the context, the wider context of climate change and, you know, the whole conversation around Black Lives Matter and inclusion. I think this is such a timely report and, you know, it's been wonderful working with colleagues at Arup to, to bring this together. And it's really exciting, isn't it? Because as you say, um, inclusivity has become so much more prominent in public discussion, as has the need for cycling infrastructure and active travel infrastructure in general. And so it feels like these agendas have really have really risen just at the time that this report has come out. I know that you were working on it since 2019 and there's been a bunch of stages including a literature review there was the bike life data you've had focus groups where you've talked to people about why they don't cycle or why they do and working out what you can do about that you've had um, workshops with decision makers in the transport sector and there's a database now of case studies of successful projects and one of the things that Sustrans has found out through its bike life surveys is it's not that people don't want to cycle it says 55 percent of people from ethnic minority groups 38% of people at risk of deprivation, 36% of women and 31% of disabled people who don't cycle would like to start. 
And so that's that's a huge amount. And I think if those surveys were actually redone now, those numbers would be even higher. So if you think those those surveys were were pre-COVID, pre-lockdown, and we've seen what a huge upsurge there's been in, in, in interest for cycling, I said those numbers, I think, would be so much higher now. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, we've seen that in our own local areas and, you know, the cities and towns that we are involved in. Over lockdown, we've seen this massive increase in, in cycling and, and all kinds of people cycling. You know, it's not just the usual usual people that you expect to see on our road cycling. And I think that's been, you know, it's not, you can have surveys and you can have reports and, and all of that out there and statistics. But for me, what has been really, really powerful about this process is getting stories from people, you know, just understanding getting getting right into the depths of why what the barriers are and i think that's been really powerful in the report but more than that you know as susan was saying during lockdown you know that's been so visible now all of us can see how that that change is required and that people want that change to happen um, and that to me forms quite a strong foundation for for work going forward and for policy making going forward mm. And the report sort of touches on issues affecting different sort of groups of people as um, the statistics from earlier, it's older people, it's women, it's people from ethnic minorities, it's people with disabilities. And although there are different needs across different groups, there is a commonality, isn't there? There are sort of common themes that come up and you have to, you know, obviously the roads have been quieter and so a lot of people have, more people have been cycling. So road safety is going to be one of them. Can you say a bit more about um, other sort of common themes that we saw across different groups in terms of what's stopping them from cycling, what would help them to do so? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the report, we've, we've sort of grouped the actions into into three main areas that, w- that will assist. So better places is certainly one of those three themes, which is about safety, road safety, but it's also about sort of personal safety and harassment. Um, that sadly has come through quite strongly. Um, it is about the importance of, of cycling infrastructure being fully inclusive. Um, so there's a very strong focus on the places, but that it that that's not enough. So that's why we focus on the other two key areas, which is to be more inclusive in terms of governance and planning and decision making, and then also this welcome and support for for all people to cycle. It's sort of it's it's not just. I think we've moved from you know a few years ago, cycling was not much thought about at all. Then we were onto the we'll stick in a cycle lane and tick the box, and we've done that. <laughs> then we've moved to, well, let's count how many people use it. And now we're moving on to saying, well, actually, you know, who are those people and who aren't those people? And I think it's it's understanding, broadening that understanding of what inclusion is all about. So I think for, you know, for TFL, for Transport for London, for a long time, inclusion has been about making things step free. If you make it step free, that's inclusion. I think for many people, they think about it in terms of gender, but actually it's actually looking at it from the broadest possible ex- perspective to make sure it's fully inclusive for everyone uh, and that's that's the real shift and that's going to take a lot more than than purely infrastructure it goes much wider than that yeah. absolutely and, and adding to what Susan was saying as well you know there's something about the language we use and making sure that the imagery that we have uh, you know that that talks to cycling is not just what you know what you see generally it has to be truly inclusive it has to reflect you know, our communities, our places. Um, and again, you know, for me, if we step back and take a look at what, what inclusive places means, and there is there is a danger in my mind about the word inclusive becoming, 
you know, becoming used so much, you know, becomes a word like sustainable or resilient. It becomes one of those words mm-hmm. that that are used quite often without quite going into the depth of what that means. Um, mm-hmm. And as again, you know, to just to, to build on what Susan was saying, a place has to be inclusive. It has to feel welcoming for everybody, regardless of age or race or faith or ability or income. All of that has to be part of what makes a place. And cycling then fits into that. Walking and cycling fits into that that place making. Um, and for me, that's that shift in narrative has been has been accelerated over the past at least two to three years. Um, you know, the, the conversations that I'm having here in Scotland and, and across the UK, I'm sure as well, it is reflecting that kind of shift in attitude. Um, and that comes through the report, I think, you know, quite clearly across the themes. Um, and to me, that's, again, going back to what I was saying, it builds quite a strong platform for that, uh, you know, for the call to action. You know, what is our call to action? What are we asking people to do? What are we asking policymakers to do? Um, and I think this kind of shift in narrative is, has been so critical and so crucial to that. Yeah. And as a delivery body, Sustrans is obviously involved with a lot of local councils and local authorities and in in creating infrastructure for cycling and walking. And I wonder what kind of impact this information is going to have, what, what you mean when you talk about inclusive spaces and how that will translate to physical space. It, 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 it is already making a huge difference from what I can see. Uh, you know, it helps policymakers. It helps um, councillors, local councillors to say, look, people want this. You know, this is what surveys are saying. This is what people are telling us to do. They want us to make make spaces better for walking and cycling. Um, but it also helps It also helps the, um, the officials who are actually going out and building this. It helps engineers who are designing this, um, this, this infrastructure that goes into a place or the, the design of a place. And finally, it helps, I think, you know, it helps communities and people uh, to come together. It helps the community engagement process, you know, where you can truly get people together to shape what the place looks like. And for me, that is so crucial. And that's something that we haven't got right. You know, and again, you know, we've talked about this before. We have to acknowledge where we we need to do better. And I think you know what this report does is acknowledge that and say you know here is how we can go we can do better. Mm. And yeah, like you say, it's it's about having communities having a say in what's happening and not just uh, a small percentage of people. Yes, it has to reflect the communities. It has to reflect the people who live there and work there. You know, whatever the context of the place that we're talking about, whether it's a city or a town or a neighborhood. You know, what, yeah. when you reshape that place, so when you look at what needs to go in, it has to reflect the aspirations and the. It has to reflect the vision of what what people see their places to be, um, and that yeah. cycling is such a big part of that. You said in your forward to the report about a lack of diversity in transport plan- planning and how you're not only often the only woman, you're the only person from an ethnic minority in the room. Yes. Absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, I, I remember going to meetings and I joined Sustrans in 2012. So, you know, this is eight years ago almost. And almost every meeting, you know, I would be either the lone woman or the lone person of colour uh, sat there. And I remember going to a meeting once and somebody said, oh, are you here to take notes? 
And I said, no, I'm here to chair the meeting. <laughs> so there oh is there is a there is a whole perception around transport that is, you know, this macho and it's it, it's transport. And I think what <laughs> you mean is so encouraging and so incredible over the past few years. And Susan, I'm sure you you've seen this in your experience as well. You know, the change in more women coming forward. You know, change in more of us. You know, having that um, having the strength to come forward and say this isn't right. and we need to we need to do better yeah and Susan you talked about how we count cycling and the report talks about this as well about how it's been about increasing numbers in the past and how that hasn't really served in terms of improving diversity perhaps you could tell us a bit more about that and what needs to change yeah i said i think you know just just counting the number of of of, of cycles using a facility it's good to see those numbers go up but actually it's important to look behind those numbers and see i said who who it is cycling and but also as importantly is who it isn't cycling and and who could benefit from that so it isn't purely a numbers game and you know having counters on on cycleways and and and, and seeing the amount of usage is great but it's that's only part of the picture and i think what the report shows is this big unmet demand for cycling as which i think will be is is even higher now following following covid and lockdown and it's how we actually make cycling more accessible for people both physically and and culturally how they can how people can see it as something that they that they can do themselves you know so often the the image is you know and i ban colleagues from using the word bicycle you know try and talk about yeah. cycle to be more inclusive yeah. and yeah. you know the imagery and this was true when the um obesity strategy came out and the gps to prescribe cycling virtually all the news articles that accompanied that were of a, a you know a man on a bike white of a certain age you know and from a lot of people they'd look at that and they'd think well if that's if that's cycling that's not for me um and so i think it's 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 just making it accessible and achievable and realistic for people and i think mm. it's it's getting people to either either people who haven't cycled for a long time maybe they cycled as children but haven't carried on in adults or if someone's never cycled you know it's like where do you start it's immensely difficult because you're not going to go out and spend potentially hundreds of pounds on a bike and you know so it it's that what is your entry point into cycling and i think that's where higher schemes or lessons and things can really help because for some people they may not like it it may not be for them so actually a way of way of trying it and seeing how people get on with it is is a, in, in a supportive environment with supportive people because you know a colleague of mine actually in lockdown she's she's uh, i guess she's early 30s she she's recently learned to cycle you know and i think that's quite a big thing for an adult to learn to cycle most of us yeah. you do it when you're kids and you fall off and you graze yourself and you know that's part of growing up but to actually you know do that as an adult is a is a big step and i think it's i think it's brilliant she took a week off and you know she wasn't going anywhere because she couldn't travel so she was like well what can i do happened to coincide with a bike being on her street saying free to a good home and it was like well this is a sign i need to learn to cycle but it's it's a really it's a really difficult thing to do i think you know don't underestimate that by any means absolutely and i think you know these stories are so powerful when we run uh, i think one of the workshops around in glasgow as part of the report you know um there was a councillor from edinburgh council mckinnis who spoke at that and she talked about you know how she's you know in her late 50s and she's very vocal about how she she hadn't cycled for over 30 years and she was quite nervous about getting back on her bike 
but then she's now transport convener. So she had, you know, she felt the pressure as she as she put it to be seen on a bike, uh, be seen on a bike. So um, she then she the next step was to buy a bike, and then she says it's quite intimidating going into a shop, you know, when you don't know anything about about bikes. So where do you begin, as you're saying? So like, where do you begin? So all those steps, those little barriers, you know, she had to push through those, and then finally, you know, she now commutes over ten miles. Uh, well pre-lockdown to city chambers and back. And she says it's completely changed her, her, you know, how how she looks at um, how she looks at a place actually, because you know, suddenly you see the barriers for yourself. And as a transport community, how how powerful is that when you can when you can do that. So I think, yeah, it's there's something so good about having these stories out there and you know being able to talk about this. This is about people, isn't it? End of the day it's about people. And you yeah. know, inclusive cycling is is the framework around which we're talking about people's lives in this specific case. Yeah, and I guess I guess the temptation is that um, if you're if you've got a certain amount of money for cycling, that you will do a linear route, as we've seen in the past, from a wealthy area to a city centre area, and you know it's like the low hanging fruit of cycling. You know, for a certain amount of money, you'll get x number of people cycling they've probably already got bikes they're already confident enough on the road to link up the missing bits and that's what we've seen in a lot of cities around the uk but i guess it's it's so much harder to sort of look at like all of the different barriers that people face the the argument that the report makes is that people who have the greatest barriers should be the kind of focus because they're potentially the people that can benefit the most. Yeah, and I think looking at, at neighbourhood areas, I mean, as you say, the, t- the temptation is always to go for the radial routes and the commuting routes. And I think that's mm. the the whole we design in our own image. And this is set out really powerfully yeah. in the book Invisible Women. Yeah. You know, but actually, the more important things, I think, are the, lo- you know, are the local areas and the neighbourhood areas. Mm. Half of all our trips are for leisure and shopping. And so we should be focusing on those. Only a 15% of trips mm. are for commuting. So I think actually sort of focusing on the commuting route is it's not the wrong thing to do, but it's not the only thing we should be doing. And actually looking at making neighbourhoods better for cycling, you know, having cycle parking, whether it's at shops or in people's homes, you know, particularly in areas. I mean, for me, one of the worst aspects of street design are cul-de-sacs, you know, looking at how you can work on housing estates designed around cul-de-sacs to make better routes for cycling so you don't have to follow the wiggly routes that cars follow so it's it's looking at some of those areas and then people might be encouraged to start cycling from their home and maybe to begin with they go to the local shops and then they find that's quite useful and they go a little bit further and they go a bit further and it builds people's confidence rather than actually sort of taking a you know a a, a radial route into a town or city center and focusing on that. Mm, yeah, and when you start to understand people, different people's trips, so women, as the report notes, women do a lot of trip chaining, so it's you're going one place, you're doing something, you're moving on to the next place, perfect for cycling, and in the Netherlands, more women cycle than men, mm, and, and by just doing these... Yeah, and by just doing these these linear routes, you're basically designing everyone else out. You're you're excluding everyone else, and then people say that cycling is white and male and middle class, and it's because those are the kind of cyclists that we're designing for in this country. Yeah, yeah, and so in terms of measurement, um, we've we've talked about how um, just the quantitative measurements are obviously not helping diversity. I know that the Leeds-Bradford cycle route was specifically built in an area that is low-income households 
and poor transport links. And they've done a lot of qualitative work, but I think they're in the minority there. What what would good look like in this sense? One of the examples I can give you from, from up here in Scotland, in Scotland, Sustrans office works with Scottish government and we deliver funding partnership with local authorities to build walking and cycling infrastructure. And over the past couple of years, as the program has grown, it's called Places for Everyone. The focus has been on more deprived areas and the research and monitoring unit that work alongside the, the project delivery team, uh, you know, are very, very conscious that the For Everyone piece is very much part of the monitoring of, of each project that goes in. So to me, that's quite, again, it's an example of how, you know, process can help in, you know, if you get your right processes in place, to make sure that you're measuring the right thing, then that can then encourage to everyone to do better. It, it depends on the context as well, isn't it? So, you know, different places will have different ways of, of measurement and different ways of what you see good look, looking like. And potentially the people with the greatest barriers, I'm just thinking about investment and return on investment, which is something we're kind of obsessed with, isn't it? Yes. But in a way, um, certain groups are, ex- well, they, certain groups are excluded because the the benefits are external to transport. So transport's almost like a siloed thing that needs to make its own money in a way, which doesn't make any sense because it's such a public good, isn't it? It's Especially when we're talking about active transport, it's yeah. it's the physical activity benefits. And often it's the people with the greatest barriers, the people who aren't getting any exercise, people with poor transport links, poor access to work and education for whom the benefits will be greatest. So it's kind of harder to do, but if you're looking in the round, there's there's just so much more benefit for society potentially. And I think that's where it brings in the the walking and cycling angle as well, because, you know, cycling was featured quite heavily in in the obesity strategy. But I think, you know, recognising that telling someone who who doesn't currently ride a bike to go and ride a bike is is a very difficult ask. And if there's someone who is overweight or obese, then that's probably an even harder ask. But I think if it can be in terms of increasing physical activity, walking and cycling, the two go together together really well you know and it always you know it interests me that Sustrans National Cycle Network is used more by people walking than by cycling so I think it's about having active travel routes and promoting both walking and cycling just as ways of being active and you know it isn't it isn't badging someone as a cyclist it's looking at at people as people and those people walk sometimes and they cycle sometimes and they might drive a car and they might get on a bus you know people do all of those different things but the, the key message is actually about you know promoting the the active the active side of it because of all the benefits it brings for physical health and mental health. Absolutely. And again, to, to your point, Laura, about the well-being aspect not being captured in when you measure the impact a project has. In Edinburgh, I led a project called the City Centre Transformation alongside when I was in secondment to the council here uh, for 18 months. And we were very clear from the beginning that we were not going to use the traditional methods of STAG or the Transport Appraisal Survey. You know, this This had to be under the umbrella of quality of life and quality of place. And that was quite an interesting process to see how you can put value to green space and to, to active places. And I think there's something quite exciting about how that kind of work is starting to take shape as well, where, you know, yes, you do the transport appraisals, but then over that you layer in your well-being and your, you know, physical and mental health and your green spaces. Um, and yeah, it's, to me, that's, that is the next step that, you know, we all need to take forward. I think it's interesting in the way it can come from from other projects as well. So one of my favourite projects in Arab is one we've got called Greener Grange Town, which was down in Cardiff. And that actually started off as a as a drainage study. 
Um, yes. And then the idea was to put in greenery to help with drainage. And it's well, actually, if we're putting in greenery, maybe we put in some, you know, walking and cycling as well. And and, and the benefits just cascade in that way. So it's, it's walking and cycling projects can, can come from unusual areas sometimes. Absolutely. I love that project. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, we have one near me in um, Stratford, actually, that has a lot of the kind of drainage with the plants in it. And it's it's really nice to cycle past because yeah, rain suds yeah. or, yeah, yeah. Rain go- yeah, it's really lovely, actually. It's got some greenery and it's really brightened up the area. So, you know, we heard that during, a lot during consultation for, you know, most projects here when we go out to public consultation, some, that's something that comes back so strongly. You, know, you want greener spaces, you want to be able to access, you know, within five minutes, your local park or your you know, and, and to have greenery and colour and wildflowers and all of that, it's, it speaks to us as humans, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of temporary changes happening in, in terms of temporary cycling infrastructure and presumably a lot of that's going to become permanent and there's a real opportunity, isn't there, to make our cities more resilient in terms of climate change and creating shade, which is so important, and creating better drainage because water runoff is a massive problem or extreme weather. And um, yeah, and just sort of that reallocation of road space from motor vehicles has has a lot of opportunities, doesn't it? Places to sit. Yeah. There's been a lot of um, announcements from government, as we know. Um, we've had gear change, which is the government's vision for cycling. We've had proposed highway code changes and we have had new design guidance. And obviously there's a lot happening with COVID um, in terms of an emergency response for transport. I'm wondering how all of this kind of feeds in to this agenda of making cycling more diverse. I I think, I mean, I think it's really timely. I mean, the fact that our report came out on the same day as gear change is a complete (laughs) fluke because I think we chose the publication date back in March or something. So it's just one of those really happy happy coincidences that it came out on the same day. So, I mean, I really welcome all the the policy announcements that have been made and you know it is it is a great sort of step forward compared to where where we've been over the last few years i think the the big thing is is sort of what happens next because we've had all this good stuff in terms of gear change but then we have the planning reforms and the potential relaxation of of, of, of planning so it's like one part of government is is saying you know all the good stuff around active transport but if there is then a relaxation how do we actually make sure that when developments are planned that they are planned with walking and cycling in from the outset and we don't end up with some of the housing developments that we've got now that are totally inaccessible by public transport or by active modes so i think there's there's a lot of welcome but there's a degree of caution there as well no i i agree with that and i think what for me is is very encouraging about the you know the gear change report is the again it's a language around it it's it's quite directive which i don't think we've had so far which i think is quite good i'm also encouraged by the fact that it's not just the uk government uh, that has announced you know increased investment i think it's exciting but you know you can see scottish government uh, wales northern ireland for the first time i think across the uk across devolved nations and the uk government there is a real sense of we need to invest more in walking and cycling and to me, that, you know, when you look at the whole picture, it's really important, as Susan says, to get it right, like, to get the next stage right, make sure that, you know, the words that are put into policy are translated on the ground, because the delivery on the ground is going to be through the local authorities, through boroughs, and we have to make sure that that disconnect is as mm-hmm. small as possible, because you see that, a lot, yeah. you know, the right words are being used, but then you see something on the ground and you just go, that's not what yeah. it's meant to be. Um, so I think there's, there is a piece of work there about the local authorities being empowered 
to to do what national policy is telling them to do. Yeah, there is a lot of that, isn't there? These these um, wonderful um, statements about putting pedestrians first and then cyclists and or people cycling, I should say, and um, it just doesn't happen in 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 the real world. And one of the things in your report, one of the three elements for um, targeted change is the governance, planning, and decision making. So I guess. I guess that's that's going to be there, isn't it? It's going to be about putting that into into practice, which is which is perhaps the hardest part. It's easy to say something; it's harder to do it. <laughs> it is, and that's where you need the grassroots, the community, um, you know, the community to feel empowered to to ask for that change, because then then change happens at that local level, and when that then marries up with the national policy, then you can genuinely make magic happen. I think. <laughs> and I think I think that. Qu- thing about support is really important because you know we've seen that it's always the people who are against schemes who who shout the loudest yeah. there was the recent YouGov poll that was showing that you know for every person against there's there's six and a half people supporting these schemes but you don't tend to hear that voice mm-hmm. and we know with you know some low traffic neighborhoods that are going in they're being badged as as road closures there are some quite vociferous lobbies typically from people outside of the area who come in to oppose and you know it's it's very easy for a politician to hear the negative voice and and not to hear that support and if the support is maybe coming from older people maybe they're not so engaged in the process so I think we need a better mechanism for all people's voices to be heard whether they're for or against rather than a vocal minority in either way being dominant. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Completely agree. And I think, you know, more and more you're seeing that seeing the backlash against some of the temporary screen schemes you mentioned, Laura, because, you know, things have been put in quite quickly and, you know, they're not the most beautiful, <laughs> you know, they're cones or wands. And that then doesn't provide the vision of what that street could look like when it's done well with thought and, and care. So there is there, there needs to be that communication of what this specific temporary measure is about and how that then leads to the the wider vision that everyone has to feed into and and shape what it could be. So yeah, absolutely. The the process, as Susan was saying, there needs to be a better mechanism because I don't think we've got that quite right. Yeah, because if if um what's happening now is being called undemocratic in in places in terms of temporary infrastructure going in before consultation takes place or the temporary infrastructure being there for during the consultation it gives everyone a chance to see it on the ground and mm. we know that having a car dominated street is not an equitable place but at the same time having these consultations which perhaps only highlight the voices of a a vocal minority isn't necessarily democratic representation of of who's for and against something it is quite a difficult one really isn't it because there's fundamental change and change to the uh, physical streets is is never going to be easy is it no (laughs) i've got scars (laughs) on my back in box to show (laughs) if they're people who aren't currently cycling which is you know we know is a large part of the population they're not going to be out there probably giving support for something to benefit cycling because they don't see themselves as a cyclist. So they don't necessarily see it as, as, as of relevance to them, let alone benefiting them. So it, it is it is very hard to actually get that support for something that you're not currently doing and you don't see as relevant to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, if you if you are frail and if you you know you have a physical or sensory impairment of any kind, change is is scary. No, I mean, change is scary anyway, but for someone who's already feeling that their lives are not what it should be, this kind of change is scary. So I think there is something about the empathy that we need to have 
when we talk about projects like this it's not it's not just this needs to be done because xyz it's like let's do this together mm-hmm. and it sounds very you know motherhood and apple pie but i think if if we get that right if we get that conversation right at the beginning then we can save ourselves a huge amount of angst you know later on in the process mm-hmm. the third element to these three recommendations is the welcoming and supporting all people to cycle and i guess perhaps you're arguing that this has to be from the beginning yes yeah i think it's i mean it's it's talking about the the language and the, the imagery that we've we've all, we've already talked about but i think also it's the the cost and the barriers to 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 getting getting yeah. a cycle so mm-hmm. you know cycles generally are are not cheap and so there can be an issue around cost and availability but i think it's also in the report draws on the the whole purchasing experience and a, a, a very brief story mm-hmm. if i may my, my background is partly in anthropology and one of the best studies I saw about the value of urban anthropology it was it was conducted by Shimano and it was quite a few years ago and they were looking at this was in America why certain groups of people don't cycle and the view was that they were too lazy too fat too whatever didn't care mm-hmm. when 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 the anthropologists went out and spoke to these people they said they all had really positive associations with with cycling when they were children but then they didn't see it as something that they were relevant when they were older and they said if they went into into cycle shops they found it a very hostile environment so they then talked to the people in the in the cycle shops and they went no 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 it's not hostile we welcome everybody you know everybody is welcome here <laughs> so then what they did is they gave the people working in cycle shops $100 or something and told them they had to go to a department store and buy certain types of cosmetics and when they walked into that department store they absolutely felt the discomfort that other people felt walking and and that's how they really got it that actually their place wasn't as welcoming as as they thought it was so it's always trying to see something from the insider's viewpoint and i said you know cycle shops are not always a, a happy place or comfortable place to be if you're not part of that that sort of type of people already you know so it's like it's it's a it's a big step for someone who doesn't cycle and cycling now is quite is technical and it's complex and you know what you've lost a lot of is is basic bikes you know a lot of people a lot of people they don't want 21 gears because they don't know what to do with them you know they certainly <laughs> don't want to start with 21 gears you know where, what where where is the basic bike on that can give people that entry into cycling so i think that's that that's really important so people can actually get a cycle and then have some training on how to use it mm-hmm. absolutely and i think we also talk so much about safety and you know we talk about cycling within the you know, in transport terms quite a lot um i think we don't talk enough about the joy and the the delight that that cycling brings to you and uh you know i got an e-bike i think a year ago year and a bit ago and i absolutely love it you know it, there is that sense of joy that comes with it and i think the more we can talk about you know this makes you feel good is is as relevant as saying it makes you feel safe this yeah. is good for your health and well-being and for the climate and all of that yeah i don't think we should forget the joy yeah i remember being in um edinburgh Definitely. last year actually um i was going on a little biking trip and i'd borrowed an electric mountain bike and i was whizzing through town it had nice fat tires so i didn't <laughs> have to worry about the tram tracks you know edinburgh yes. is just full of trams um and uh, there was a guy next to me at the lights on this hill uh, uphill and i just looked across at him and i was like e mountain bike best thing ever and he was like yeah and we, <laughs> and we both just whizzed <laughs> off <laughs> it's brilliant i know with seven hills in edinburgh and i think you know what the e bike has done is just it flattens the your so flattens good. the hills in edinburgh yeah and i can just dot it up for meetings and not you know feel like i'm about to die 
<laughs> yeah, I love. I absolutely love. I've got an e-bike as well, and I absolutely love it. It's fantastic just for going around in your normal clothes, and it really does make it more accessible to so many more people for many so many reasons. Brilliant. Or maybe I can ask you what you want the report to achieve. Maybe a big question, or maybe an obvious question. I think, from my perspective, I'd like it to help decision makers, politicians, transport planners, all the sort of people that are likely to read it actually realize that cycling is for everyone and I said to get rid of the conventional image of a person typically a man on a bike Mm -hmm. and and realize that actually cycling embraces all these different types of people and should embrace all these different types of people where you know from the the 5 to 105 not even the 8 to 80 sort of thing so it is a viable form of transport for the majority of the population and we just need to actually help that become real and as Daisy said I think bringing the the joy back into cycling as well so yes it's a great mode of transport for A to B but it's so much more than that Um, but yeah it is that cycling should be and is for everybody. Mm. Yeah and just to add to what Susan said from my perspective there's also um, I'm hoping that this report can accelerate change that needs to happen because I think you know we've demonstrated that change needs to happen and that people want change so what they should do is now get that emotion, get that really fast. And from a personal perspective, I hope that it also allows people to to reflect on you know on attitudes and on um, how we how we perceive cycling. You know, what do we think about when we talk about inclusive cycling? And even in, within such strands, you know, to challenge ourselves to to be better and, and to make sure that the for everyone that you know we want to be at the heart of everything we do. Mm. Is truly at, at the heart of what we do. Um, so yeah, so external and internal, I think there is some reflection and then there is a lot of acceleration yeah. that we need to do. Yeah, I think one of the things that stuck out from me in the report was that, you know, just admitting that we'd got things wrong and, you know, looking around at the people cycling, generally speaking, it's, it is it is a very sort of narrow portion of, the, of society who feels brave enough is is what it boils down to to cycle on the roads and so obviously something has gone wrong and um and yeah and i think i think you're right it is a it is a chance for reflection and and hopefully to move forward so yeah super important reports and um, really nice to talk to you both i wonder if there's anything else that you wanted to say is that you feel that we've missed out um, I think from my perspective, nothing much more to add, except that, you know, I, I love the fact that we're three women here talking about cycling, yeah. which I think is is brilliant. Um, and, you know, the fact that this is even on the agenda and we're talking about inclusive cycling is so different to when I joined Sustrans in 2012 as an architect, slightly naive thinking, oh, I'm going to go into the world of walking and cycling, you know, it's going to be amazing, no one can... No one can be angry in this world. <laughs> you know, it's been quite a learning process over the past eight years. But I think we're at the cusp of something quite incredible. Um, and yeah, I think the more we can collaborate and make that happen is really excited for the future. Wonderful. Susan? Yeah, I think for me, it's it's broadening the scope of cycling because so often it's associated with a sport and it's seen as a, a sporty yeah. activity. And I think the more we can just see it as something for, you know, everybody and something that you don't need a lot of kit for. Um, it doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be competitive. 
you know it is almost that 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 joy of 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 the self-propelled transport um but getting getting away from the sporty side of it i think that that helps a lot because as soon as as long as people see it as a sporty thing they probably don't see it as relevant to themselves so it's almost getting back to it's almost viewing the bicycle or the cycle in an old-fashioned way i think it's it's that different image yeah wonderful well thank you both so much for coming on the podcast it's been great to hear from you thank you thanks laura it's lovely to talk to you Thank you for listening to the Active Travel Podcast's lucky seventh episode with Sostrand's Director of Urbanism, Daisy Narayanan, Arab's Global Active Travel Lead, Susan Claris, and me, your host, Laura Laker. You can find and subscribe to the Active Travel Podcast online on our website at blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ATA forward slash podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at active underscore ATA. Let us know what you think through social media or via email at activetravelacademy at westminster.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. Until next time.